that these people were American citizens and yet found themselves living in barracks, very primitive barracks behind barbed wire. The only other place in the world that that was happening at the time was in Nazi Germany. My guest today is Daniel James Brown. Daniel writes books that quickly climb to the top of the New York Times bestseller list and stay there. He has a unique way of writing not only a great and inspiring true story, but also a fascinating work of history. A few years ago, his book, The Boys in the Boat, Nine Americans in Their Epic Quest for Gold at the 1936 Berlin Olympics, was a New York Times bestseller. It was a fascinating story of how nine working-class boys from the American West showed the world at the 1936 Olympics in Berlin what true grit really meant. His latest book, Facing the Mountain, a true story of Japanese-American heroes in World War II, which just came out, is already a New York Times bestseller. It's the true story highlighting the contributions and sacrifices that Japanese immigrants and their American-born children made for the sake of the nation during World War II. The book follows four Japanese-American families and their sons, who volunteered for the 442nd Regimental Combat Team and were deployed to France, Germany, and Italy, where they were asked to do the near impossible. I recently sat down with Daniel, and we discussed how researching Facing the Mountain opened his eyes to the extraordinary sacrifices that Japanese-American soldiers made that were never given their fair due. Daniel, I want to thank you so much for coming to the show today. I want to tell you, I've, I've watched you from a, read you from a distance, and I'm so excited to have, uh, have you on the show because the latest book that you wrote, uh, Facing the Mountain, the true story of Japanese-American heroes in World War II, literally, it, it read like a novel, and it was absolutely gripping. Great. Well, I'm, glad you've, I'm glad you found it that way. I'm always trying, when I write about history, I'm always trying to um, basically use a novelist's approach to try to pull readers in and, and make them experience the story, you know, in, uh, in, personal, in personal terms. So glad it worked for you. Well, no, no accident that you're a number one uh, best-selling author at New York Times. It doesn't happen by accident. By the way, I, I did like, one thing that I loved about your reading style, because I never read any of your other books before, is your sentences are short, crisp, and no wasted words. I really enjoy, I guess that's what you, you, you do on purpose, but what a difference when you're reading your book. It's like, it's snappy. Yeah, well, you know, I think a writer's job is to make it easy for the reader to uh, to keep moving down the page. So, I, yeah, I work hard on that part, actually. Well, keep doing it, man. You're doing great. <laughs> I don't have to tell you that. Sales are telling you that. <laughs> All right. So before we get into the book, uh, Facing the Mountain, how did you pick this topic? You live in Washington, right? Spokane, Washington? All right. So Seattle. Seattle, okay. So now, for many who don't know, and I think you have a beautiful map in the book. During World War II, right after Pearl Harbor, the eastern part, all the way up from Washington, including Oregon, California, and Arizona, that was called the exclusion zone? Yeah, that's right. Uh, there was an exclusion zone, ran down basically the west coast. Didn't include all of Washington or Oregon, um, but a big chunk of both those states, and then California, and a little, and a little bit of Arizona. Um, and uh, Japanese Americans were uh, forced from their homes in those areas and put, of course, into these camps. Into concentration camps. So the only reason that they were there was based on their ancestry, even if they were first-generation Americans, uh, they were born in America, it didn't matter since they were Japanese or had Japanese ancestry and looked Japanese. No, you you had, what, they just came to your house, put you in a, in a, in a car, and off you went to an internment, uh, to a concentration camp. Yeah, well, so, yeah, generally what happened was first the FBI came, knocked on your door, or sometimes didn't knock, um, ransacked through your house um, looking for contraband. Uh, again, whether you were an American citizen or not, you were not allowed to um, own certain items like binoculars and, and things like that. And then um, that, that all happened within days of the attack on Pearl Harbor. And then in the two months that followed, um, gradually people were rounded up and uh, 
they were usually taken first to what the government sort of euphemistically called assembly centers. And these were racetracks and fairgrounds where oftentimes people were made to sleep in horse stalls in really primitive conditions. So they, just dump, they, there, just, they just dumped people. They, they knew they had to do something to Japanese Americans. Hysteria was running rampant. They actually believed that they were fifth column communicating with the Empire of Japan. And they had to get these people off the streets. Right. That's, that was the military, uh, military's point of view. There is actually quite a bit of debate within the Roosevelt administration. The attorney general, uh, Francis Biddle, um, thought that this was unconstitutional. And so there was a, there was a debate um, between December of 41 and February of 42 about whether or not they could and should do this. But ultimately, the uh, military planners won out and they they began this program of uh, rounding people up. Okay, so this is a part of American history, which really is, it, it doesn't, it, it's pretty bad. It's pretty bad where you would think if you would describe this to someone without mentioning America, mentioning Japanese, you would think you're talking about Nazi Germany. People yeah, I mean, yeah, go ahead. There, there are undeniable uh, similarities, you know. I mean, it's um, it was a very conspicuous thing um, that these people were American citizens and yet found themselves living in barracks, very primitive barracks behind barbed wire. The only other place in the world that that was happening at the time was in Nazi Germany. So, you know, you can carry the comparison too far. Obviously, these camps were not Auschwitz. They were not Dachau. They weren't slave labor camps. They weren't death camps. But they were, in fact, and this is why I used the term, they were concentration camps. They were designed to remove a certain population from the general population, concentrate them um, behind barbed wire and isolate them from the rest of society. So actually even Franklin Roosevelt called them concentration right. camps at one point. So how did you pick, before we get into this topic, because there's two parts to your book. There's the terrible part, which is the deportations and putting these Japanese Americans of Nisei, am I pronouncing that right? Yes. The Nisei, the, which were the uh, second generation. That's right. right. Second generation. So those are children born in America from Japanese parents. And the Issei, which yes. were first, which were immigrants. Okay. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So now, how did you come upon to write about this part of American history, which so little is known? Oh, I just remember what I was going to say. There are really two parts to your book. One is the passive part, which really isn't so passive, where they're rounded up and placed in, in concentration camps. And the other part of the book, which I just was absolutely amazed by, was the 442 uh, infantry. The, it was the infantry, right? It was, um, yeah. yeah, 442 infantry. One of the most highly decorated uh, in military history. All Japanese Americans fighting and in the worst possible conditions. That's part two of your book. So first, how did you come upon to write a book about a period of American history, which many people, we don't learn much about in school. I don't remember learning anything about this in school. And something that is not even talked about much in terms of their military bravery. Yeah, so, well, there's a guy in Seattle named uh, Tom Makeda, and Tom has for the last 25 years been uh, videotaping uh, Japanese Americans, mostly older men and women at this point, talking about when they were younger men and women, uh, videotaping, recording, and saving these uh, oral histories, these firsthand accounts of what people experienced, Japanese Americans experienced during the World War II years. So I met Tom and uh, he explained what he did and I went home and I sat down and he's put all these oral histories on a website called uh, densho.org. And I, I started clicking around in there and, and listening to some of these stories and I was just mesmerized by them. I mean, there were a lot of really interesting stories in there and they were the kind of stories that I'm drawn to. They were about uh, young Americans confronted with really difficult 
circumstances and having to um, persevere, having to be resilient, having to come together to get through this um, the set of problems that they faced at the beginning of the war. It actually thematically was a little bit like my previous book, The Boys in the Boat, in, in that way. So I was really drawn to those stories. And uh, so I started talking to Tom and he introduced me to some of the family members of some of these people. And um, over the course of several years, I, I whittled it down to a few that I wanted to focus on and spent a lot of time with the families and and get doing back, you know, basic background research. And, and so the book grew out of that. So when you started this book, how many years ago did you start this book? As I've, almost five years ago. Five years. So many of the, many of the uh, veterans, uh, or people who experienced this, they were dying out, right? They were pretty old, yeah. I, would, I would tell you. Yeah. Did you meet a lot yeah. of these, uh, a lot of these uh, uh, people who, so, who went through this process, went through this ordeal? Yeah, I mean, I, I did meet a fair number. It is true, though, that um, when I started already, most of the veterans had passed away. And as I was writing the book, more of them passed away. And actually, one of the four men that I profile in the book, a guy named Fred Shiyosaki, just passed away about um, about six weeks ago, I think. So, you know, uh, that was one uh, Tom, my who has collected these stories, and I, as the writer, both felt there was a, a certain urgency to, um, to getting these stories curated and uh, and and told on as large a platform as we could. While you know, while some of these people are still alive. Right. Okay. So let's set the stage. At the time, which I did not know, uh, December sixth, one day before, December sixth, nineteen forty-one. About 30% of the population of Hawaii is Japanese descendants, Americans, yep. uh, ch uh, children born of Japanese parents, and, and immigrants, right? Yes. Okay. Yep. So they came here and they worked in most of them horrific conditions as they came over because Japan was starving in the late 1800s. They came over here not knowing much and they were since Hawaii was not a state, they were coerced into signing documents, which you put out in your book, which made them work much longer, much harder, for less money than any deal that they thought they were signing up in Japan. Yeah, so you know, the Hawaiian Islands were at the time run basically as one big sugarcane plantation, sugarcane and pineapple plantation, mostly cane. And uh, so most of these immigrants came and found themselves working in the cane fields um, in under absolutely brutal conditions. I mean, really horrific conditions and also very racially segregated conditions. Um, and um, and so it was a very, a very hard life. Their children, the Nisei, uh, though, were born in, those who were born in Hawaii, they also often grew up working in the cane fields, but they they were beginning to um, go to college and go to you know high school and sort of get some of the um, trappings of American middle class life by the time Pearl Harbor came along. So Hawaii was starting starting to change, um, but yes, a huge portion of the population of the islands was uh, was of Japanese descent. Yeah, I, I never knew that. I had no idea, and and all of a sudden, how these why the um, they were able to get away with. Uh, this type of really, it, it was really a, you know, a slave colony, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's. Yeah. yeah. Plantations, the plantations were, <laughs> were absolutely brutal. I mean, the conditions in Japan that they had left were also brutal. There, there was famine and starvation and these terrible conditions. So most of the, I mean, some of the immigrants that came to work in the cane fields uh, when they realized how brutal the work was, some returned to Japan, but Actually, very few did. Most of them determined to to stick it out. And as you know, as a, immigrants to this country always have, they set their eyes on trying to make things better for their children's generation. And also, they couldn't afford a, a return ticket back. They had to go uh, unless they signed these these yep. cruel contracts in order to work for much lower. I, I, you 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 depict how they worked in terms of the insects and the snakes and and all of the types of. Uh, conditions 115 degrees and they had to wrap themselves up babies on the back amazing i don't want to give it all away but really really well worth it written in the book now 
December 7th, your description, your na- the narrative of what happened the morning of the attack, kudos. I've never read an account which was so uh, on the ground of things that you've never thought about, houses, what people were thinking, what they were doing, where they were running to, what they were witnessing. How did you get all that information? You know, I'm always trying to put my reader in the moment. So I spend a lot of time doing what I call micro research, which is literally finding out little tiny details like what time the sun came up over Oahu and what the cloud patterns were like. And then listening to these these recorded oral histories, not just of the four guys I'm writing about, but of other families that were there that morning. Um, You listen to enough of those recordings and take enough notes and eventually you can just sort of piece together the jigsaw puzzle and get a very, very granular, detailed view of what unfolded minute by minute from somewhat different perspective. You know, I mean, we've all we've all seen movies about Pearl Harbor. We all sort of have a a sense of that narrative. But I really wanted uh, readers to um, to see it through the eyes of. particularly Japanese Americans, uh, Nisei. You know, a lot of the um, a lot of the Japanese Imperial pilots that came over the islands on bombing raids that day, uh, they, they flew in so low that um, people on the ground could see them looking down. And the people that were looking up at them in many cases were of Japanese descent themselves. So it was an interesting sort of um, shock to all these young Americans of Japanese descent to see people who looked like them bombing the place they considered home. And that's sort of what sets the sets the narrative in motion. Okay, so December 7th is a demarcation point for these Japanese Americans. In a matter of hours, they're looked as as dangerous, the dangerous fifth column. They're any, yeah. The Constitution does not protect them. Uh, they are stripped of all of the rights that every American has. And you do profile the book, which we'll talk about in a minute, Gordon, who I thought was an amazing, amazing person, who challenged all the way up to the, I think, the Supreme Court, right? Yeah. yeah. And uh, what they went through. So uh, I, what I really liked is on December 8th, how some of these Japanese Americans were walking to school, these kids, and their friends didn't look at them the same anymore. It was a different ballgame. Yeah. I mean, you know, just having a Japanese face or a Japanese last name completely isolated you from the rest of the world you'd been living in up to that moment. So you most, for the most part, both in Hawaii and on the mainland, these, the Nisei, the second generation kids, they'd been going, you know, going to high school, playing on the football team or being the yearbook editor or whatever kids that age were doing. So they had groups of friends and some of those were Asian friends and some of them were Caucasian friends. And they were, you know, pretty much integrated into American life. And then boom, like that, as you say, on December 8th, they walk into their school buildings and people just turn away from them and look the other way, or in in some cases beat them up. There were all kinds of things that happened. But um, again, from the perspective of these young Americans, that was the reality that they faced and they had to figure out what do we do with this? How do we move forward in this country now that this thing has happened? So we have, that's what's happening in the Hawaiian islands. Now we have the mainland, which is Washington, Oregon, California, and Arizona. Really could take a map and just a few inches inland and just draw it straight down. And that whole section is what the American government considered, or the military you know, considered to be any Japanese American in that area has to be considered hostile. Right. And so what happens is uh, Roosevelt issues an executive order uh, 9066 on February 19th of 1942. And within weeks, um, as I said before, the FBI had already visited most of their homes ransack their homes, but now they come back and people have to get on buses to be taken uh, to these camps. And what that means in practical senses for these families is 
They have to walk away from the family farm with crops in the field. They have to close the doors on the laundry or the shop that they run. Uh, they have to try to sell off their possessions for pennies on a dollar or simply give them away to their neighbors. They had to abandon the schooling that they were in the middle of. They had to, children had to give up beloved pets. Um, so it was just, it was, you can imagine, I mean, if you put yourself in that situation, how traumatic that would be. And everybody had to go, little old ladies with walkers and little tiny children and everybody in between all had to get on the buses and go with, with very, very little preparation. So it was, it was very traumatic. So they're given some time to take whatever little possessions. They have no idea. The government at this point really has no idea what to do with these people. So they put them in these assembly centers, as you mentioned, which are places of, of you know, a racetrack, which is already built or, a, or an open area or, or what have you. And they're using stalls and all that stuff. Then the army figures we have to get a little smarter here. So they start building these concentration camps. Describe, because you do it so amazingly in the book. I, I, I feel the some of the places they put these these camps you feel the heat just reading <laughs> you yeah. know it's it's like whoa yeah so these places are if you tried to pick there were 10 of them and if you tried to take pick 10 places in the american west that were brutally hot in the summer and brutally cold in the winter that would be these 10 spots um the the one i write most about um because the one of the families i follow was incarcerated there is Post in Arizona, which is out in the Mojave Desert. And as, as you can imagine, is a 112, 114 kinds of temperatures during the summer. But yeah, these are bleak camps. They're surrounded by guard, uh, excuse me, barbed wire with guard towers, often case with guys with machine guns in them. They're living in these flimsy barracks. And um, Part of what happened was that family life sort of disintegrated, uh, morale disintegrated, particularly amongst the older people, the people that had been running businesses or whatever, the parents who had all of a sudden lost the, you know, everything they had tried to build for the preceding decades. So it was a, um, it was both a physical shock to live in these places, but also a you know mental and psychological shock. And one of the problems within the camps was just this kind of despondency that came over people, um, partly because particularly in the first year or so, they became just extremely bored. There was very little to do initially in these camps, except sit on the stoops of the barracks and stare out through the barbed wire. So, um, so over time, um, within the camps, they started to build schools and they began to organize themselves. And that's actually a pretty interesting part of the story. But it was, you know, it was a huge blow to them. What happened to their assets? They had money in the bank. Uh, what happened there? So what happened was uh, initially, um, uh, Issei, first generation um, Japanese immigrants. Could you, could you, could you sort of translate that in Japanese, what Issei means and Nisei means? Nisei means first generation. Nisei means second generation. Um, so the Issei, the first generation, um, they were not, it was interesting, they were not allowed to apply for American citizenship because they were Asian. No Asians were allowed to apply for American citizenship. So they were, they were citizens of Japan often only because Otherwise, they had no country at all. Their assets were frozen. Uh, they were allowed, their bank accounts were frozen initially, and then they were allowed to withdraw a certain amount per month. I forget what it was. $100. And it was, it was, it was you, you wrote that it was a concession. They got it to $100. Originally, many didn't want even that much. Yeah, and which would have left them completely unable to pay any bills or whatever, because even when they're off to camp, they had still had bail bills to pay from before, you know, for whatever life insurance or the dentist bill back in Sacramento or wherever. Um, so, um, so their the the assets of the Issei were frozen uh, for for quite some time. The American citizens in the camps could continue to have bank accounts um, outside the camps. But they had virtually no, <laughs> no income to, you know, replenish those bank accounts. So just in sheer financial terms, 
life got got really hard um you know in, just in terms of of having uh, having a little bit of cash you talk about which i i really i you know we learned it in as a line item in american history the chinese exclusion act signed by uh, president chester author in 1882 which barred immigration of chinese labor you go through a little before that of of really it's a, a pogrom it's it's a they lynch these Chinese people and kill them in horrific ways. And uh, just give us a touch on that, because I think that was an amazing point. You know, it goes to your, your brilliance in your micro telling of history. It's those little points that make the big picture or really clarify the big picture. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I found I needed to learn a lot about this in writing it. Um, you know, there was this explosion of anger against anybody of Japanese descent right after Pearl Harbor, which you can understand in the context that where the anger would come from. But but actually, there had been a, a long history of anti-Asian discrimination and violence on the West Coast, especially from 1849 on when the gold rush happened in California. You know, large numbers of Chinese immigrants came to work in the gold fields, not digging gold so much as doing laundry for the miners and working on the railroads and, <laughs> and, and very menial kind of being cooks in the camps and things like that. So there was a pretty large influx of uh, Chinese immigrants in the 1850s. And um, that unleashed a huge wave of violence against Chinese immigrants. So there were lynchings and burnings and people being driven out of their homes and driven out of town, everybody, you know, Chinese, all the Chinese in a particular town rounded up and driven out of town. And, and so that all happened really, you know, much earlier in our history, but it sort of laid the foundation for what came later in the, you know, a little later, there was this period where this notion of what they called the yellow peril came up and um, American newspapers and a little later Hollywood um, took to portraying uh, Asians of all kinds, Asian immigrants as locusts or rats or snakes or particularly bringers of disease, um, equating them with disease. All that had been sort of worked into the American psyche um, long before Pearl Harbor. So when Pearl Harbor happened, all that, you know, all those images and those associations they were already there, and they just came bubbling up to the up to the surface. I like how you put in uh, June of 1919. Senator James Fillane of California testifies before Congress about the unfair advantages of Japanese immigrants. He said the problem there is they work too hard, and they're being too ingenious. So he said they're tireless workers and the preserving and clever agriculturists. They know how to get the last penny out of the soil. I regard them and their economic destructiveness, their competitive ability as enemies to be rejected, to keep away from as a plague of locusts, not to be compromised with, but to be eliminated. They're too good. They work hard. Because they work too hard. <laughs> they work too hard. <laughs> They're too ingenious in how they farm. Yeah. I mean, it's an incredible... <laughs> That, uh, that's an incredible statement to make, of course. And this only, this, this only 20 years, 20, 21, 22 years before Pearl Harbor. This is an ancient history. This is, an, this is the enlightened 19th to uh, 20th century. Right. And so, as I say, that was, that was already, particularly in California and on the West Coast, uh, that, that was sort of baked into, into the pie bef even before Pearl Harbor happened. And I, I want you to point out also that... Uh, marrying a Japanese, uh, an Asian, marrying a white woman was against the law in many states. Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, and those laws stayed on the stayed on the books in some states in through the 40s and into the 50s, I, I think. Um, but yes, the anti-miscegenation, they called it laws, prohibited Asians and uh, whites from marrying. Okay, so now this is going on. You have the first generation, the American-born Japanese. They're they're a little more, no, not a little more, a lot more, uh, um, not upset, but um, just fuming, fuming about what's been done to them. They've learned American history. They understand the Constitution. They've learned all of this, and they're now in camps. And the war continues to go on, and all of a sudden, the United States government says, "You know what? We could use these guys." Yeah. What happens? 
Yeah, so uh, in the spring of 1943, the Roosevelt administration reversed course and they created an all Japanese American uh, army unit, the 442nd Regimental <laughs> Combat Team. And so all of a sudden, young Japanese American men were allowed to enlist. Up, to, up until that point, if they had gone down to the Selective Service Office to enlist, they were simply turned away. They were told they were enemy aliens, even though they were American citizens. But now all of a sudden, they can enlist. And so that sets off actually a big debate amongst young Japanese American men and their parents within these camps, especially about what is the right thing to do here? The government has locked us up. They've taken, they've ruined us financially. Um, we're living behind barbed wire. Um, and yet many of these young men wanted to fight for the country. So there, 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 there was this debate about what to do. And there was also so, the Japanese culture of respect uh, to the to the elder of the family, the father. Uh, yes, he was the all-knowing, all-saying, approval-seek. You had whatever he said, you did. And here you have a you have a war of a, a clash of cultures. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so many of the Issei, although you know, none of them ever was proven to do anything disloyal. Many of them, they had been born in Japan. They, their families were in Japan. They had affection for Japan. Um, their children basically didn't. Most of their children didn't even speak the language. So there was tension within families about whether or not you know, joining the American army was, was the right thing. But most of the tension was between the young, among the young men, the young American men themselves, because um, many of them were just furious that their all their all their liberties had been taken away. And yet, as I say, uh, thousands of them also uh, wanted, did, did want to enlist and ultimately did. Right. I think the number you had in the book was only 20% of these of this age said they, uh, there was a two-part question. I forgot what the two parts, what was the question that they had to, they had to answer? Yeah, there was a loyalty questionnaire in which they had to um, renounce any loyalty to the emperor of Japan and in which they had to promise to serve in combat. Um, and all Japanese and Japanese Americans had to fill out this, um, this form. A certain number of young men declined to answer those two questions not because they had any loyalty to the emperor of Japan, but because no other Americans were being asked to sign a loyalty form. And I just want to point so, out this, the, the Japanese, Japanese Americans are the only ones, German Americans didn't have to sign this, Italian Americans didn't have to sign this. Anyone we were at war with in, the, that had descendants here or came from another country or country war did not have to sign this, it was only the Japanese. Which was exactly one of the reasons that a, a number of these young men just, and they came to be called the no-no boys. They just said, no, I'm not signing that. That's, I'm an American, I shouldn't have to sign that. They were then segregated from within the camps and all sent off to a particular camp in Tule, Tule Lake, California, and labeled as, as disloyal. But, it's, but so, it's amazing out of all of this, 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 this cohort, it was only about 20% that did that. 80% yeah. said, we want to serve. Yes. We're loyal to yeah. this country. Yeah. And so um, thousands of them enlisted in, um, in the 442nd and, um, and went to basic training and ultimately uh, went on to fight in Italy and Germany. Yeah. Before we get to that, because I thought that just was so captivating. It really was amazing how uh, they, the, the, the tension between Japanese Americans from different locations, from the boys from Hawaii, the uh, the um, what were they called, the Buddha heads, mm -hmm. and then you had the um, the the uh, what was the sound of a coconut dropping? What was that called? The the katonks, katonks, because that's what sounded like coconut. They made fun, and then you had the mainlanders. So there was a there was no love affair between them. There was a lot of fighting between the Japanese young men who were going to serve in the army amongst themselves. Yeah, so particularly the guys from Hawaii and the guys from the mainland, when they came together, they all went to basic training at Camp Shelby in Mississippi. And uh, the first few weeks they were at Camp Shelby, fistfights broke out all over camp immediately. And part of what was happening was the kids from Hawaii, they had grown up um, 
as I say, working on plantations. Um, they had sort of a hang loose, casual attitude towards uh, life and towards following rules. And they all spoke pidgin English. And if you've ever heard Hawaiian, pig, uh, Hawaiian pidgin, it's really difficult to understand. The mainland guys, they were mostly middle-class kids. Some of them were students at UCLA or, or Washington or wherever. Um, they were much more serious, partly because they were coming out of these concentration camps and they, they didn't have a hang loose attitude at all. So when these two groups came together at Camp Shelby, they really clashed. The Hawaiians were speaking pidgin, the other guys couldn't understand them. They snickered at them that you know made the Hawaiians feel uh, as if they were being attacked. And so all hell broke loose basically within the camps and, and they considered uh, um, abandoning the idea of the 442nd, there was so much strife between these two groups. Uh, so it took a long time to work through that. So now you have the, and by the way, you have one great line, one great line, you have many great lines in your book about, uh, about uh, this camp in um, Camp Shelby in Mississippi. The smell of magn magnolia filled the air to cover up the stench of death or something to that effect. Uh, the lynchings, how many, I think there were more lynchings there than anywhere in the country of black people. There were lynchings, you know, just a few months before these guys arrived at Camp Shelby. There was an absolutely brutal lynching, not that far from Camp Shelby. And of course, all through this period that that was going on. And, and you know, the, to, to be, tell you the truth, the, the Japanese American guys, when they arrived in the South, they knew that, you know, they weren't white, they weren't considered white, and they weren't sure how they were going to be treated by the locals. And in fact, they weren't allowed off the base for, for months because the army wasn't sure how Mississippians were going, were going to treat them. So there was a lot of anxiety among, among these young men about that as well. Yeah, just the, the hanging bridge, uh, a pregnant lady was, was uh, two young boys, 14, 15 yeah. years old were killed. So uh, yeah. not Japanese, these were blacks who were just taken out of prison and killed. And, uh, and that was, that was Mississippi. That was that, that yeah. these were these young men were. So now, yeah. now the most amazing part of the book, you have these guys, they're training and they are breaking records in Camp Shelby in terms of the obstacle course. They are focused, they are smart, they are, they have high IQs, they're, they're acing tests. They're just doing everything, everything right. Oh, before I do that, I want to say one thing that I thought was, was just so amazing. Even the fathers of some of these boys, as you write in the book, who did not want them to go and disagreed, they all said, don't dishonor the family. Yeah. It was that. Oh, yeah. Almost universally. I mean, it really jumped out at me when I was listening to all these oral histories. Um, the last thing the father said to these young men as they were getting on the train or whatever to go off to basic training was, well, fight for your country. I understand you need to fight for your country. Fight well. I hope you aren't injured. I hope you come back alive. But whatever you do, don't bring dishonor on the family. And um, so as American as these kids were, they had these, you know, some Japanese uh, <laughs> values at work on them too. And it actually, I think it helped them a lot when they actually got on the battlefield, some of those Japanese uh, warrior traditions. Well, one of the fathers said to one of their kids, uh, something to the effect of, uh, if your commander says to go and get shot, get shot at, you know, just kind of thing. And look, before you tell us a story about the 442, the most amazing part of the book, I thought in Italy, uh, when they saved the uh, the boys from Texas, the 442 exclusively Japanese, right? All Japanese, yeah. and within that was the 100th Infantry. I'm just going to throw some stats. You, of course, know them. The 442 was the most decorated in military history. 100 uh, it was uh, 140,000 men, 18,000 men in the 100th Infantry. In two years, 4,000 Purple Hearts, 4,000 Bronze Stars eight presidential unit citations, and 21 Medal of Honor winners. This Amazing. Doesn't, this doesn't come from drinking the water, right? This, this happens, no, and, and they all happen to be of the same exact makeup. They're all Japanese-Americans whose families were in concentration camps or being treated as fourth-class citizens in Hawaii. 
Absolutely, yeah. And I should mention the 100th Infantry, it's a little confusing, 100th Infantry Battalion was one part of the 442. Right, right, right. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right, the 442 was 140,000, and out of that you had the 100th Infantry, which were just amazing. Okay, right, 18,000 men. Now, these guys get to Italy, and they realize, and by the way, it, it, before they go, there's a couple of points in the book, I don't want to go over them now, but where they, they work as a unit. Now, the boys from the mainland, the boys from Hawaii, everyone joins together. They see their role in this together, and life gets a lot more serious. So yeah. now they go to Italy, Anzio. Worst possible battles there in sub-zero. I, I remember watching uh, Band of Brothers. Uh, Stephen Ambrose spoke about uh, World War II, and uh, um, they were interviewing some of the survive some of the people who fought in Anzio from the uh, Band of Brothers. And he said, "There has never been a colder day in my life than the period in Anzio." Because anytime I feel cold, he always his wife goes. He says it's not as cold as it was in Anzio with. With bombs blowing up, it was it was just living hell. It couldn't get worse. It couldn't worse. And these guys are going into the Italian theater and faced with amazing, amazing odds against them. Yeah, they were. You know, they almost always had the odds stacked against them. Part of the one of the things that happened in the Italian part of the campaign was they were always fighting their way up the side of some mountain or another. The Germans, because they had been there before the Americans arrived, the Germans always held the high ground. And so the 442, they had a series of pitched battles, every single one of them involved fighting their way up some mountain into, you know, machine gun fire and tank fire aimed downhill at them. And that's part of why they had the extraordinarily high casualty rates that they did was because they were always disadvantaged, you know, in, in that sort of tactical way. And the first few months in Italy, they were, the 100th uh, Infantry was called the Purple Heart Battalion yeah. because so many were injured. So many suffered wounds in their first few months in Italy. Yeah, it was just uh, extraordinary. Um, and yet they kept and yet they kept fighting. You know, most of those Purple Hearts, um, they were sent off to field hospitals someplace. And a few weeks or a few months later, they were back on the battlefield again. Uh, Depending on the wound, of course. What I find amazing is there was one part in the book, and I'm trying to look through my notes here, and I can't find it, but you'd know it immediately, is one of the, two of the boys who were there, one of their sons, one of their brothers dies. He's killed. And he sends a note back to his father. He said, regardless of what they're doing to us in America, in the concentration camps, there is no greater country and no greater cause than to fight for our freedom. Yeah. Yeah, that was the Sato brothers, um, actually both of whom died uh, in the 442nd. But yeah, I mean, the, the, their father was working as a houseboy uh, in Massachusetts in a, a rich lady's house. And, uh, and so he saved all this correspondence. And sadly, there was letters first from two sons and then there was a telegram, and then there was letters just from the one son, and then there was another telegram, and no, and, and no more letters. Okay, yeah, that was it was tragic, just absolutely tragic reading that. But they still, it's just amazing. They still believed in the American way of life. They still believe. They didn't even know what they were coming home to. Home, yeah. call it home. They didn't know if they had a home. Right, everything yeah, was taken away them, from them. Most of them didn't really have a home, and they knew they were going to come back to the same kind of racial, you know, situation that, that they had left. Okay, so now bring us to the part which I found to be the most, uh, you know, I was reading it this morning on the train and I couldn't catch my breath at some points. I'm saying, my gosh, don't tell me that they're going to have to go. Talk to me about the Texans, how they're surrounded by the Germans, how, and by the way, what were they called, what, were they, what did the Nazis call this unit, right, the little... The good old Iron Men, they, 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 they garnered such an, a record that even the uh, Nazis um, became aware of their battlefield success and, um, and started calling them the little, the little Iron Men. But yeah, so the battle that you're referring to, um, after a series of battles in, uh, in Italy, they were shipped to uh, France, to northern France actually to the French-German border. And this is now when the America, the Allied armies are starting to try to push into Germany, um, but they're not quite there yet. 
So they were under a commanding general named General Dahlquist. And uh, the 442nd was just one of the units under his command. Uh, a large part of his command was what they called the Texas Army, a, a, a division of soldiers, mostly from Texas and Oklahoma, mostly from Texas, actually. Um, Dahlquist, um, the 442nd was uh, tasked with liberating a town called Bruyere, and they fought under miserable conditions for days and finally liberated this town and started to move into the Vosges forest, this dark mountainous region. In the meantime, General Dahlquist had ordered some of his Texas soldiers too far into the Vosges forest, out on the end of a ridgeline on a mountain, and they'd gotten cut off and surrounded by the Germans. And uh, many of them were wounded, and they ran out of medical supplies, and they ran out of food, and they had no drinkable water. Some of them had gangrene. They began to die on that mountaintop. Dahlquist sent several other uh, Texas units up that mountain to try to break through and get to them, and none of them could. So finally, he woke the Nisei soldiers up in the middle of a dark, rainy night and ordered them up the mountain. And uh, so the 442nd, for the next five or six days, fought their way up the side of this mountain in rain and snow and sleet, again, um, with superior German forces above them. Well, I just wanted to interrupt you, Daniel, a second, because uh, sure. the book is still fresh in my mind. Many times they were fully exposed, fully yeah. exposed to, uh, to mortar fire, to snipers, out in the open. And these- Yeah, and even to, even to direct tank fire. Tank fire, uh, yeah, jeez. <laughs> used you know, against them as, as ground troops. Um, uh, so, they, so yes, they fought their way up that mountain, and um, and eventually, eventually, after taking terrible, terrible losses, they did. They broke through. They got to these Texas soldiers. Um, they gave them cigarettes. The Texans patted them on the back and came down off this off the mountain. But Dahlquist then ordered them, the Nisei soldiers, to keep pushing deeper into the Vosges forest, and so they fought for another four or five days under again horrible conditions before they finally got you know pulled down back off the mountain and would you describe when the texas uh boys saw these japanese boys there were guys around five and a half feet tall their uniforms were extremely baggy they uh, their their pants were very blousy because they were so big their helmets you know figure putting on adult clothes on a kid that's what one of the descriptions you put in the book and these big texas guys were patting them on the back saying you know, I love you guys. You you saved our yeah. lives. Yeah. And, and it was yeah. You know, years later, in 1962, I think it was, uh, Governor Connolly of Texas actually made them all honorary uh, honorary Texans. So <laughs> it's really quite something. And Dolquist wanted at the end. He wanted. He was just a terrible general. Terrible. He just was so out of touch. Suicidal general in terms of sending his men into hazardous conditions. He wanted to have a review where he would walk by and see them. Tell us about that. Yeah, so um, when the 442nd finally came down off the mountain, Dahlquist ordered them to do a retreat parade, to pass in, pass in review in front of him. And the morning of that ceremony, Dahlquist arrived in a Jeep and stood up on a platform and looked out. And um, there were only, I don't remember the exact number, but instead of the thousands of troops that he expected to see, there were, I think, less than a thousand because the casualties had been so extraordinarily high. And he snarled and he demanded why everybody else hadn't turned out. He said, when I asked them to turn out, you turn out, I want the cooks, I want everybody to turn out. And um, Lieutenant Colonel Purcell, who the, who the guys, the Japanese American guys absolutely adored, had to turn to him and say, General, these are all the men I have left. And he, and he was crying when, when he said that. Um, was, and you know, I think it was the first time that Dahlquist realized what had, what had happened up on that mountain in terms of you know, the human cost. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the story progresses, the war's over, take us from there. 
So the war, the war is over and these guys come home um, in dribs and drabs mostly. Uh, many of them had to stay in Europe for months more as, you know, as they waited to come home. When they got home, for the most part, they, you know, about the time they were coming home, their parents and their families were coming out of these camps and uh, trying to make their way back to the West Coast. And, you know, it would be lovely to say that there was just this glorious, happy ending that they were all welcomed as war heroes. Um, but the reality is, for the most part, when they got back home, they came back into communities that still really didn't want them to be there, despite their battle records. Um, and so they continued, um, particularly on the West Coast, this is not true in Hawaii so much, but on the West Coast, a lot of them continued to struggle to, to sort of be recognized uh, as fully American, even after all, all that they had been, been through. I remember reading when the Black Americans came home, uh, there was nothing worse in terms of fear for a Black man in the South to be wearing a, a, a military uniform. They were taken yeah. and beaten and many times killed. Yeah. So the uniforms didn't do much to, you know, to buy them, to buy the Japanese Americans uh, the respect that they really, really deserved at this point. It did. Now, I should say that um, some of the vets of the 442nd uh, who returned to Hawaii, um, they actually, when they left Hawaii, as I said earlier, it was a plantation. It was a very brutal system, um, particularly in regards to Japanese and Filipino and other immigrants. A number of the 442 guys that came back, uh, the veterans, they used the GI Bill to uh, go to college. And then a bunch of them went to law school. For some reason, they tended to go to law school in Washington, D.C. at either Georgetown or George Washington. And that sort of cadre of veterans with law degrees then came back to Hawaii. And, um, and they began to change Hawaii. Over the, by the mid-1950s, they, sort of, they had risen in business and risen in government. And they began to sort of wield the levers of power in Hawaii. Until by the late 1950s, actually, Japanese Americans were probably the biggest single uh, political block and most influential block in Hawaii. So they won statehood, statehood for Hawaii, and they, they began to modernize Hawaii, and they turned it in, you know, into the mo more modern state that it, that it is today. So this journey that you took for the past five plus years, and now it's in a book, how is it, by the way, how is it being received? How, how are people like um, average Americans who are reading this for the first time, forget about your amazing story uh, telling abilities and just really crisp writing. When they're reading this, what's the reaction you've been getting? So it's been it's been positive. I'm happy to say. I mean, I know. I hope it is positive. I'm just saying, like, are people saying I knew this or I had no idea or what? What are they? Yeah. What's their? Well, so the my non-Japanese American readers, many times, you know, I'm reading reviews on Amazon and I'm getting emails and I'm looking at comments on Goodreads and places like that. Non-Japanese American readers, many of them are saying, well. You know, I had a vague sense about these camps and stuff, but I really didn't know the half of it. Um, so a lot of them are expressing surprise, as I was surprised, at um, what an interesting and complex story it was. Um, and then I'm happy to say my Japanese-American readers have really been embracing it enthusiastically, which was very important to me as a non-Japanese-American. I spent a lot of time trying to, you know, work with the families and work with that community and leadership in that community to make sure everybody was cool with me, with me doing this. And so I've been really, really pleased, especially by the, uh, by the reactions from, uh, from those folks. In all of your research and all of your interaction with all of these amazing people, the veterans and their families and watching these oral histories, where it really consumed you, right? You could you definitely get that sense. Uh, I'm sure you woke up cold sweats in the middle of the night, sometimes thinking you're in these camps, because I know when you get involved in a subject, you, you're immersed in it, you live it. So I totally yeah. get where you're coming with that. And uh, it tells, you know, you see it through the writing, uh, which is just masterful. When you started this journey and learned about this and from ground zero and and to where you are today, what is the most amazing thing that you've learned 
about the Japanese Americans, the 442, the 100, the Debo. What is that one thing, if I could ask you that, that just, I know there's a zillion things, but while I yeah. keep talking, I'll give you a chance to keep thinking. But what, <laughs> what's that one thing that you said, holy smokes? You know, it's really, um, it's the fact that these young Americans, um, they had the same kind of resilience that sort of characterized that whole generation of Americans, Japanese, Italian, uh, whatever. Um, young Americans of that, I'm a big fan of, you know, what Brokaw called the, the greatest generation. I, I really think they were challenged in a way that, uh, that my generation never was. Um, so I'm a big fan of that generation. And these young men, they were so earnest. They were so determined to do the right thing. They were so, uh, they persevered through such incredible difficulties. And they were so good hearted about it, everything that they did. They reminded me a lot of another book I wrote, The Boys in the Boat, The Young Men in That, um, as sort of, even though they're Japanese American, and so that sort of makes them, you know, puts them in a different shelf in some ways. They're really on the same shelf. They're on. They're really um, typify sort of what's great about America when America's really working well. And so it was just that. It was how uh, fundamentally American these Japanese American kids were. You know, uh, I was thinking about that. I was going to ask you this question from the start, and I was thinking about what did I learn about this. And there were just so many things. But the one take really, I have two takeaways. But let me give you the first one. My first one is, despite seeing parts of America at its worst, these young men, this, these, this whole group, were at their best. They were asked to do something that, if I was in that situation, you got to be crazy. I want me to risk my life, and my parents are here. We lost everything. Uh, we were stripped of our citizenship in a heartbeat. You want me to go fight for this country? So they didn't see it that way. I didn't. I mean, it's really remarkable. And I think that that's what I mean about their, their character. Um, they had a, they had a willingness to do something for their country. Um, that was just, you know, it's just, I, I have the same feeling. I don't know that I could get myself to do that. It's just an extraordinary leap to, um, to come out from behind barbed wire um, and wait, wait, and let, me, on, let me just compound that before you get out of barbed wire. In a culture where the father is the lawgiver and the father's telling you, don't do this. One called him yeah. stupid and cursed him. And yeah. to just go against your father, yeah. that's a book in and of itself. Yeah. Uh, and Maybe. here to go against and go fight for the country that's keeping me in here and made me lose everything. And these guys did yeah. it. Yeah. I'm, and that's that's precisely what I mean about about their character. Um, for me, writing these books, it's always about exploring uh, character, and uh, and these guys these guys didn't disappoint at all. And the la and the next thing, the last thing, and we'll, we'll wrap this up here. It, I could talk to you for hours about this. It's just absolutely amazing. I'm, this is probably one of the few books in, that I'm never read again. I usually never mm. read a book twice. I think there's a handful mm. of books. This book you had so much good stuff there that I was reading it so quickly that I, I glossed over and you talk about what kind of foods they ate. And, and the, I just glossed over because I wanted to add to the action, but the way you describe it and the seafood and how they, it's just absolutely, I love that stuff. The second <laughs> thing which I thought was just absolutely staggering, which just blew my mind, was the humbleness that you felt from these veterans who didn't seek glory. Many of them, I'm sure, never even spoke much to their families about what they did and yet were beyond heroes. They, they changed the course of the war, they, they shortened the war, and they changed this parts of this country in amazing ways. And modest, and you just see from the, some of the pictures you have in this, they look like people you'd pass on the subway that would just not, not bother you at all. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's partly, I mean, I think, I think that's kind of true of that generation in general, you know, the World War II generation. They didn't tend to talk about it a lot, but it's also a Japanese cultural thing that you do not brag about things that you've accomplished. Uh, so um, th these guys all were, you know, the, the, those who were still alive when I was able to talk to them, 
some of them were very heavily decorated war heroes. And I approached them, you know, so honored to simply talk to them. And they always said, oh, no, 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 I'm honored to talk to you. So yeah, they, 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 they really tended to be that way. Amazing, amazing. Daniel James Brown facing the mountain, absolutely amazing. Uh, I, I think that you know you you opened up a door to a part of history which is not so comfortable. In fact, it's it's really an embarrassment to us. But it goes to show you the greatness of this country and the greatness of the American people, especially those who were so afflicted by this. That at the end of the day, we're all Americans, and we're all, to use a pun, is we're all rowing the same direction. For your other book. We're rowing in the yeah. same direction here, and uh, instead of you know cursing this country and trying to destroy it, which these people had every right to do, did the 180 degree exact opposite. They went and they fought, and the benefits we're all enjoying today. Yeah, uh, it's it's a remarkable story, and I'm really been have been honored to to write it. I think. Wow, uh, Daniel James Brown, you've done a great service to this country and to history, and. Uh, most importantly, to these Japanese-American heroes, all of them, who continue to be American citizens, who continue to love this country and give their sons uh, as a sacrifice for our freedom. Yep. Yeah. Continued success. Daniel, thank you so much for being on the show, man. I really, really enjoyed it. Th thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Charles Mizrahi Show. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, we'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also see the video of the interview on the Charles Mizrahi Show channel on YouTube.